So last Sunday, we uh, began this mini-series, a three little uh, short series of sermons um, by talking about family. We're going to be talking about family this week and next, and then we'll be on to another topic. But I know some of you are like, I, I don't really want to come to church and talk about family. My family doesn't fit the mold of what a Christian family looks like. Y'all just be patient with me because that's not really what, what we're angling at. Last week we talked about the church as a family and how y'all should look at each other as a family made up of sacred bonds. And I know you don't know each other yet, especially because we're still a new community. You look around the room and you go, I don't know these people from Adam and Eve. But, but that doesn't mean you're not a family. I mean, you go to a family reunion, do you know everybody there? No. You probably avoided knowing everybody <laughs> at your family reunions. Uh, and so church is like a family reunion. Sunday morning should be like a family reunion, just less awkward, less weird, you know, like full of people that, that you've made sacred promises to. Because every time we celebrate a baptism, really every time we gather and break bread together, we are implicitly promising to be a community, to support each other and pour ourselves out for each other and hold each other accountable and pray for each other. We, as a church, are a family. Now, today we're going to move a little bit beyond that and talk about the families that you have outside of this place. Because we all have some kind of a family system, family unit that we claim outside these four walls, outside this family. We have our nuclear families or something like that. Now, what you might be surprised to know is just how unique and diverse our community is in terms of the family systems that exist within our, our congregation. It's like nothing I've seen before in Christianity, like the true blend. I think the, you might be surprised to know that the traditional nuclear family where mom and dad are married to each other and it's their first marriage and only marriage, you know, and, and they have two kids and a picket fence and all that stuff, like that's great and awesome and I bless you in that and I'm in one of those families, but families like mine are in the majority and the, the, the minority here. Like the majority of our family systems are non-traditional families, you might say. We have a, an inordinate number of like blended families where people bring kids from past marriages into a new family. We have a lot of adoptive families here. We have single parent families here. We have families with two mommies, families with two daddies here. We love you and we have, we have families here that that might not fit the, the mold here at the story, that are trying to find Jesus together. We've all got our own baggage, all got our own issues. Some of you, you know, are, are, are distant from your blood relatives. You're not close to them, either geographically or emotionally. Um, you're not into that. And so you've created family systems with your friends. You've created a family with your friends and roommates, and it's your family. That's who you call family. And that's awesome. We bless that. That's great. But listen... Whatever you call family, whoever you call family, there's some stuff we can all agree on. Like we know instinctively that it's critical for us to stay connected as a family. And yet we also know and can agree that it feels increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to stay connected to our families. And we're baffled by this because we're supposed to be more connected than ever. Like why are we struggling to stay connected as a family if we've got all this technology and all this stuff helping us to be connected, why are we having trouble keeping family together now more than ever? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think there's a couple of reasons we struggle to stay connected. First of all, I think our desired outcomes 
uh, are, uh, are impossible. Our desired outcomes are unattainable. And I think our strategies to achieve those outcomes are unsustainable. Our desired outcome is unattainable. Our strategy is unsustainable. Let me explain. The desired outcome we all have in this life, we're all innately wired as Western American citizens, is to win. We want to win at life. And whether you want to admit it or not, that's what you're wired to do. That's what you want to do. You want to win at the game of life. And that's how we live our lives. That's how we lead our families is to win. Winning looks like upward mobility. Winning looks like doing better than we used to, having a better life than our parents had, giving a better life to our kids than we have. You know, winning looks like high-achieving children. Winning looks like unforgettable vacations. Winning looks like, you know, friends that respect you, admire you, jealous of you. You know, that kind of thing is winning. And we all want that. That's our desired outcome. And, uh, you know, so we strategize as such. Our strategy to win is that we'll do whatever it takes to win. We'll work however many hours it takes to get ahead. We'll push our kids as hard as we need to push them to get the most out of them, to set them up for success so that they'll win too. Because when they win, it makes us look like we are winning. Now, we do this because we think winning will lead us to happiness. And some of you are thinking, well, he's being judgmental. That's not me. That's not who I am. He's talking about some of these other sinners in the room. <laughs> he's not talking about me because I don't just live to win. Okay. A couple things just in response. First of all, it's not okay to lie in church. And, and, and God hears your quiet lies. You know what I'm saying? Secondly... Most of you, I've seen your Facebook and Instagram feeds. I know you're in it to win it. I see the life you're living. If you don't want me to talk openly about your stuff, then just unfriend me or block me on social media and we'll just pretend everything's okay. But until then, can we just be real together and admit that we're in this to win this? Like we are trying to, to win life. That's our desired result. What I'm telling you is that that de desired outcome is unattainable. And yet we strive for it, doing whatever it takes. Family today and our strategy of uh, doing whatever it takes reminds me a little bit of what we used to do on the playground. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called Red Rover. Y'all remember Red Rover? Uh, somebody told me uh, in the first service that they don't let kids play this on the playground anymore. Too many broken arms and stuff. But when we were kids, they didn't care about that, I guess, uh, as part of being a kid. So we played Red Rover. It was just a game that was cutthroat. It was a Darwinian, dog-eat-dog, strongest-survive death match. And you won by completely obliterating the other tribe, the other team. Not only did you defeat them, you 
assumed them. Like they were on your side at the end of the game. You know, it's like you you acquired them. <laughs> and that's how you, it was really, you ever think about how cutthroat that is, right? So that's, that's how we used to play. We used to hold the hands of the people on your team. And then you would, you know, decide who to call from the other side. Red Rover, Red Rovers, and Justin right over. And, and Justin would come running full speed. And if he was strong enough to break your bonds, then he could claim you and the person whose hand you were holding and take you back to his team with him. But, but if you were strong enough, if your grip was tight enough, if you could just hold on well enough, long enough, then you could withstand the attack of that enemy, Justin, and he would become one of you. <laughs> but Red Rover was all about holding on to each other. Red Rover was all about winning by the, your own means, by your own strength. And Red Rover was savage in nature. And when I, when I look at families today, I see the same thing happening. Red Rover revealed the best and worst of our human nature. Because when things are good, and you're on a team and things are good, and your team is growing and you're winning and you're feeling good about yourselves and you're feeling strong, you know, everybody's supporting everybody. Everybody's okay. But, man, when your team starts to lose, your team starts to dwindle, when there's a weak link in your chain and your weaknesses are exposed to the world, it's amazing how quickly you turned on each other. A lot of blaming, shaming, finger-pointing. All of a sudden, what once, you know, when you're winning seems so perfect, suddenly turns into like Lord of the Flies. Like you're just like every man for himself. I see that a lot with families. I see, I work with a lot of families just by nature of the church. And, and I see this happening a lot. We play the game of life with the same cutthroat strategy. We try to win. We just go full speed ahead and we just hope that we can hold on long enough. We hope that there's no weak links in our system. And when things are good, they can be really good. When your family's winning, man, you feel good about yourself. When your kids have more opportunities, more stuff than other kids, when you've got better vacation pictures to show off than all the other kids, and whatever you've got, you know, better cars or better life, whatever, it feels good to be winning. But, man, let one thing go wrong. Let one weak link in your family's chain be exposed. Suddenly a family starts to turn in on itself, turn against itself. What's even worse is when families endure that kind of strife for long enough, you just kind of start taking each other for granted. You kind of forget to treasure each other. I know that's been an issue for me at times. When I have, uh, as I'm prone to do, tried to win at life. The hard part for me is when things just get so busy for so long. You know, when I'm trying so hard to win, and I tell myself that I'm doing everything that I'm doing for my who? Family. I'm doing it for y'all. Why are you complaining? You know what I mean? And y'all know what I'm saying. I'm not the only one who gets into that autopilot mentality where I'm just cruising, doing the best I can, trying to be all things to all people, meanwhile forgetting about the people who should matter most, taking for granted those closest to me. I know I'm not the only one. 
who when life gets so busy, some of you have really demanding jobs. Some of you are students with an overwhelming course load. And then throw in all the other extracurriculars and social things we get ourselves wrapped into. And, man, it's easy to flip onto autopilot. It's easy to forget to treasure those in our inner circle, those we call family. It's easy to forget you have an extraordinary family that loves you, especially when you're too busy to treasure them, to stop and hold them, to stop and thank God for them. So, one of my favorite uh, authors, uh, Christian authors, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote a book called Life Together. And he wrote a, this book about the, the church as a family. And this quote I'm about to share with you all uh, is actually about the church. But if you're not a Christian yet or, or, or if the church as a family doesn't resonate with you and you just want to think about your own family, you can replace a few of these words and the, the, the principle still applies. Bonhoeffer says, Christianity means community. The physical presence of Christians or the physical presence of other people in your family is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. So what he's saying is when we cruise through life, when we're in that autopilot mode, because we have that gift at our disposal every day, the gift of that family, it's easier to take them for granted and forget about them because we're just full speed ahead trying to win. Most of us have that gift and take it for granted until, until life gives us a wake-up call. You ever had a wake-up call? Something that happens unexpected, some kind of emergency, some kind of crisis that comes out of nowhere that gives you a sudden sense of perspective that you've been lacking. I've had some wake-up calls. Like the time my wife gave birth, both times my wife gave birth, and things got so bad that it was touch and go. Like they almost lost her for different reasons both times. It was scary. A few years after my daughter's birth, she was three years old. And she was so proud of this sundress that her grandma had bought her. She was wearing it, and she saw me, her daddy, standing across the street. And without even looking both ways, she bolted across the street to show me that sundress that she was so proud of. And at that exact moment, a Buick came speeding by. He, too, was on autopilot, I suppose. I don't think he ever saw her. I know that his Buick Spender came within a few inches of my little girl's head. Within a few inches of changing everything for me, for us, forever. When my son was two years old, we were roughhousing in his room and uh, he fell on his own, uh, not because of me. <laughs> That's still the story I'm telling my wife. <laughs> There's no lying in church. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, brother. With friends like these. Uh, and so he fell and hit his head on the corner of his bedside table. And he still has the, the scar here. He'll have it forever. And for the first and only time in his life, before or since, my son was completely motionless, completely still. As he lay face down 
as the blood pooled under his forehead. I can still hear the sound his head made, and it, I still have nightmares. And I'll tell you what, for days or weeks after each of those incidents, after each of those wake-up calls, I was a different guy. I turned my phone off more often, and I didn't care if I missed a call or a text or an email. I complained a lot less. I prayed a lot more, but I didn't ask for God for anything else. I just prayed to say thank you. When was the last time you prayed just to say thank you? I played with my kids on my knees a little more often. I brought flowers to my wife a little more often. I allowed myself to feel things. <laughs> I cried because I felt Usually when I start feeling something, that's when I reach for the phone, you know, like just to escape that moment. There was no escape and I didn't mind because I had, had a wake-up call and I realized that there was more to this life than just life on the surface, autopilot, full speed ahead, trying to juggle and hold on. Have you ever had a wake-up call? Why does it take a wake-up call? to open our eyes to the things that really matter most. Why do we need a crisis to remind us that we're taking our families for granted? Why can't the togetherness that we share as family be enough? Why can't what we have together ever be enough? When I read the whole Bible, really, the Bible is just this uh, great testimony about how what we have should be enough and we should be content with what God has given us. The psalmist in Psalm 133 says how good it is when brothers and sisters gather together in community, how good it is to be together. I doubt everyone here this morning woke up on a Sunday morning after maybe a couple of late Saturday, Friday nights, you know, and you're, you just woke up and said, how good it is for brothers and sisters to be together, you know. That's not how we think. We look at togetherness as a chore sometimes. When we're on autopilot, when I'm at my worst in that mentality, that mindset, I not only take my family for granted, I, I resent my family for standing in the way of my success, of my potential sometimes. Man, that was hard to say. But I'm telling you, that's, that's how when it gets to its worst, that's how you can begin to think. You can begin to think, yeah, okay, you need me, but I'm doing this for you. I'm doing, I'm writing this email for you, kids. Daddy, just come play with us. But I'm being, I'm winning over here, you know, for you. We grow in our resentment of those closest to us who just want us. They don't want our success. They just want us. When we're on autopilot, it's not enough. We run full speed. And we really try to hold on. We just really just keep running and hope that they're still there when we stop and look back. One of my favorite pastors that I follow uh, writes a blog, and he was writing a blog. I was reading it, and, and uh, it was about this very thing. And he talks about this very deal that we're talking about. He says that this uh, phenomenon that we're talking about is one of Satan's slyest agents it's the agent of familiarity. His mission, his agent's mission is clear and total. 
Take nothing from your victim. Cause him only to take everything for granted. See, this agent, this Satan, he won't steal your salvation. He'll just make you forget what it was like to be lost. You'll grow accustomed to prayer and worship and thereby not pray. And worship itself will become commonplace and study will become optional. And with the passing of time, he will infiltrate your heart with boredom. And cover the cross with the dust so that you'll safely be out of reach of change. Nor will he steal your home from you. He'll do something far worse. He'll paint it with a familiar coat of drabness. He'll replace romance with routine. He'll scatter the dust of yesterday over the wedding pictures in the hallway until they become a memory of another couple in another time. He won't take your children. He'll just make you too busy to notice them. He'll make you forget that the faces around your table will soon be around tables of their own. Hence, books will go unread, games will go unplayed, hearts will go unnurtured, and opportunities will go ignored. All because the poison of the ordinary has deadened your senses to the magic of the moment. The poison of the ordinary will deaden your senses to the magic of the moment. So, guys, whether it's your family here at church, the poison of the ordinary Sunday to Sunday, deadening your senses, or whether it's your family at home, and I think that's more likely, the ordinary of the day-to-day where togetherness is just not enough. If you let it, the ho-hum of the everyday will numb your senses to the extraordinary gift that God has already given you when he surrounded you with family. I knew this guy in Kansas City. I actually kind of knew of him. We had mutual friends at the time. His name was Richard. Richard was highly successful, high-powered uh, pharmacist guy, uh, and he was the kind of guy that wanted everyone to know just how successful he was. Y'all know this guy. He wanted you to know what kind of car he drives. He wanted you to know what kind of club he belongs to. He wanted you to know what kind of vacations he takes. And uh, this Richard guy kind of carried his success with him. I, I, I know that he was a family man. I know that he loved his family. I just think he had a weird way of showing it. Here's how he showed his love for his family. He bought him things. He got his wife a new Land Rover that she drove around town. He, he, his kids, I think, were like some of the first kids in Kansas City that had you know, iPads when they came out. You know, kids had their own iPads. That wasn't always a thing. Did you all know that, kids? Uh, <laughs> There was a time when that was new, you know. And uh, he and his family, they, they took more vacations than anyone I had ever known until I moved here to Houston and met some of you. Uh, some of you put Richard and his family to shame uh, with your vacations. It's all right. That's how Richard loved his family. But here's the deal. That kind of thing always has strings attached to it. When that's the way you love someone, it always comes with strings attached. So 
whenever his wife and children would complain or just pipe up about wanting more of their husband and their father, you know, around and present, he would kind of say stupid things. (laughs) He would say, you weren't complaining when you were showing off your Land Rover to your friends. He would say, you kids enjoying those iPads? He'd say, how'd y'all enjoy Cabo and the Caymans last summer? Where do you think all that came from? Who do you think paid for all that? What do you think it takes to pay for all that? It wouldn't hurt you to be a little more grateful. What happens when someone says something like that to his family? What happened to Richard? is that his family only complained to begin with because they missed him. But by the time he was done talking, they didn't miss him anymore. By the time he was done talking, they only resented him. You might say that they even hated him a little bit. His wife, Melissa, returned her Land Rover to the dealer, traded it in for a used Camry just to send him a message. Their kids took their iPads back to the Apple store I'm just kidding. They kept their iPads and (laughs) y'all were like, that's a little, I don't know. They kept them. But they might have traded it in if it meant just a little more time with their dad. You know, uh, they, they started to resent the vacations they were going on. You know, they... They just wanted Richard. They wanted their dad, their husband, and he was on autopilot. Why? Because he was trying to win. Why? Because his dad tried to win. That was all he knew. He thought he was doing the best he could until one day, and this inevitably will happen if you are on autopilot for too long. One day after fighting with his wife in the morning, Richard found himself spending his lunch hour at a hotel with a coworker. And it was the first time he'd ever done anything like that, but he did it the next day too. And the next week. Until his wife found out. One time he came home late from work and the locks were changed. And Richard had his wake-up call. Richard uh, had some friends that went to the church Gio and I had started in Kansas City, and he asked them if they would put him in touch with me, and Richard and I uh, sat down to talk, and as I said, I I knew of him, and I kind of had this weird respect and admiration for him, because every man wants, and some, some part of every man wants to be who Richard was, the great provider, you know, giving his family everything, private schools and all that stuff, and every man, part of him wants that. And so it was really shocking for me. Uh, I've never been that great provider (laughs) sitting across the table from a guy like Richard and just watching him melt down into a blubbering mess of sobs and tears. He was utterly afraid. Because he had his wake-up call and he knew he wanted to change everything, but he had this terrifying sense that it was too little too late. And that what he should have been valuing most all along was now gone forever. And he would never have his family back again. And so Richard asked me for advice. And I think he expected me to give him some of the psychobabble kind of stuff that we say to people in crisis. And you need to find yourself a good therapist and invite your wife to go to therapy. And I've said all those things. There's nothing wrong with saying those things. And 
you know, some behavior modification and just tell her that you love her and you know, it's stuff that we say and it's pleasant and nice. But I was compelled to tell him something else that day. And I told him, I said, look, you're going to be tempted now to compensate for what you've done. You're going to be tempted, just like you've always done, to, to fix this with stuff. To buy your way out of this, to provide something, to make a showing, you know, to make it right. But I'm telling you, Richard, the most important thing you can do for yourself and your family right now is to make a decision about Jesus. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And they always do when I say things like that. But I said, if you really want to make a lasting change in your life, potentially in your family's life, you got to figure out if you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you believe he's the Son of God, you've got to let everything else flow from that Reality. So I gave him some sermons and a podcast. I gave him some books to read. Richard knew nothing about who Jesus really was. He had never really been a part of a Christian family. But he showed up on Sunday at church with his family, with his wife and kids. They showed up. For five straight weeks, they showed up and sat in the pew together and worshiped with us. His wife, Melissa, cried her way through almost every service. And on the sixth Sunday, Richard came alone. Melissa and the kids were away at her parents' house. She just had to get away. And so Richard came on his own. And after the service was winding down, we were singing the last song together, Richard came forward like an old school revival kind of. And, and he, he came and whispered in my ear, he said, I want to be baptized today. And as the congregation continued to sing, I whispered in Richard's ear, I said, Richard, that's awesome. God is good all the time, whatever. But listen, Melissa's going to kill you if you do this without her here today. Don't you want to wait until your family's here to celebrate this with you? And he said, Eric, this has nothing to do with her. This has nothing to do with them. This can't be a show. One more thing I'm doing to compensate for what I've done. This is all about me making my mind up about Jesus. And with or without my family, I know who Jesus is now. We baptized Richard that day. I'm not going to tell you that it was uh, overnight transformation. Everything was rosy after that. It was a long and hard road Richard had to walk. But I'm telling you that over time, the love of Jesus changed that man from the inside out. A total transformation, a new creation. Because Richard finally got it. Richard finally understood, and here's the key. If Jesus really is the Son of God, then surely Jesus is strong enough. Surely Jesus is able to handle all the stuff Richard was trying to handle on his own, with his own two hands. You see, Richard was trying to do the Red Rover uh, uh, version of, of family. He was trying to hold on with his own strength. He believed he was strong enough to hold it all together, but he wasn't. Jesus is. Richard wasn't. 
And so Jesus decided to, I mean, Richard decided to let go of what he was holding on to and hold on to Jesus with both hands. You see, parents, parents, this is important. Parenting as a Christian is not about holding on to Jesus with one hand and your family with the other. That reeks of some kind of, I don't, I don't know, inauthenticity. When on the one hand, you're doing Jesus on Sunday, but on the rest of your time, you're, you're just being a secular person over here. No, no, hold on to Jesus with both hands because when your family sees you holding on to Jesus with both hands, I promise you what will happen is that they will understand and see the transformation happening in your life from the inside out. They will see you becoming a new creation through the grace of Jesus, and then they will be compelled to hold on to Jesus with both hands too, until suddenly you're not doing family like this anymore, depending on your own strength. Suddenly you're all surrounding Jesus doing family like this, holding on to him together. And that's what happened to Richard and his family. A total transformation. Because they stopped doing this, they started doing this. Jesus clears this up for us in John 15. He says to his disciples before he's crucified and all that and taken away, he says, look, guys, I'm the vine here. You're the branches. I'm the vine. Root yourself in me. Connect yourself to me. Abide in me. Get your nourishment from me. Let me nurture you. Let me water you. Let me grow you. Don't depend on your growth anywhere else, from anyone else, from your family or anyone, your pastor, anyone. Abide in me. Be rooted in me, he says. I am the vine and you are the branches. I am. I'm telling you, this is the new strategy Jesus came to give us. He came to give us a new desired outcome and a new strategy to get there. I know in the house today there are many families that are struggling. Maybe you're struggling outwardly. Your dirty laundry is all out there in the open. Some of you are probably struggling internally. I promise you the answer is not in your own strength. The answer is not in you finding a way to hold it all together. Here's the good news. It's not that you should have been holding it all together and you messed up. You weren't able, you weren't strong enough. Here's the good news. You were never meant to be the one holding it all together. That was never supposed to be you. You were never given that kind of strength, that kind of capacity to hold a family and a life intact. That's not up to you. All you were ever meant to do, all God ever created you to do, was to abide in him, to cling to him, to show your family the way to him, not in a coercive or religious way, just by abiding in him and letting them see the transformation happening in you. This is the new strategy. This is the hope your family has for salvation, for a better life, a better future. No more of this. Only this. Your family is struggling. Parents, friends, kids. Cling to Jesus. Let him change you. Let him change your family. Together he'll change our church. He'll use us to change this city. It's not up to you. It's up to him. So trust him.